your Bibles, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, and let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you more than anything else that you are with us here, not just because you promised to be, there's a promise that your word proclaimed that you would be the Emmanuel, our God with us. It was a promise that you confirmed to your disciples. You said, I will be with you even until the end of the age. But Lord, there's no reluctance in your presence with us. It is the passionate desire of your heart to be with the people for whom you gave everything to purchase and redeem. And so I pray, Lord, as we turn to your scriptures, we acknowledge we don't need the the words and the wisdom of man alone. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to cause your scriptures, your word, to come alive in our hearts. Change us, Lord, mold us and make us more like you. I pray that the the soil of our heart would be open to whatever it is that you have to say to each one of us. I thank you that you are speaking, that you are moving, whether we recognize it or not. But as you said so often, Jesus, would we always be a people who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? Open our ears, open our eyes to see you, for we desire to become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Book of Romans. We've been in Romans chapter 1, a series of sorts really focused on one verse of this wonderful book, although we will go to a second verse as well in this time. As you turn there, let me share a a little humorous anecdote that I came across this week. I'm not sure why this particular one appealed to me. Maybe it was because I could actually see it happening Maybe it was because we were talking about church notice boards last Sunday. But here it is. It says, There was a happy couple posing for their photos outside the church after their wedding. They had all the usual groups and pictures, the bride and groom, the bride and bridesmaids, the happy couple with her family, with his friend, her friend, etc., etc. But when the photographer took a closer look, there was a problem. Behind the bride and groom in every photo was the church notice board And it prominently displayed a Bible verse, Luke 23, verse 34. Who knows what that is? Off the top of their head. (laughs) That's right. The verse was this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. (laughs) Maybe it appealed to me because that was a little, little, little like when I married my beautiful bride many years ago. You launch into this great adventure, and it's really God's grace, isn't it, at work in our hearts and lives. But you know, it's a little bit like what we're trying to hopefully unpack and discover is never losing sight of the beauty and the power and the majesty of the gospel, a term that we use regularly. But what does it actually mean? And Paul uses it as we've unpacked over the last few weeks, this wonderful verse. We'll read first of all verse 16 and then we'll head elsewhere from there. He says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as we looked in the the first week, the message was entitled, The Message Matters. And Paul says as he opens his letter that he's come with this, this urgency and this compulsion and this passion with one message on his heart to tell his listeners, the Romans, whom whom he wrote to, about the wonder and the glory of the gospel. 
And, and is that the message that we're presenting in an era where there's more noise and there's more words than ever before, but where there's, there's more platforms for our words than ever before? All the power, just think of that for a moment, that you literally can type things in and let who knows how many people know whatever it is you're thinking. And what do we use that for? For so many people, we use all of that power to let the world know what we had for lunch, what we're going to have for dinner. Our preferences. Now, there's nothing at all about eating a good hamburger and sharing it with the world. We did that on Friday night at the men's group. Men, come along if you're keen. It was a great hamburger. and We readily shared it amongst our WhatsApp group. But the message matters. Is that really the message? Is the message cutting through the glory of the gospel? And have we lost that urgency and the passion for that to be forefront of all that we do? And then we looked last week at, well, what is it that Paul says the message does? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for, or some translations say, unto salvation. So the message matters, but the heart of the gospel is salvation. He says, we're not saved unto the best version of ourselves, to some self-improvement program where Jesus will come along and you know, he'll help guide you through. He'll help you find a greater sense of inner peace. The gospel is this message of a savior who came to rescue and redeem. And what a mockery we make of the gospel when it's anything other than that. He paid his very life. Written in blood is the glory of the gospel. And we need to always make sure that there is that reality of a God who saves and rescues and redeems. So the heart of the gospel is salvation, but the heart of salvation, and this is where we didn't quite get to last week, and we'll pick up there and hopefully head into some new ground. The heart of salvation is this theological term that we often use, but perhaps don't fully understand what it means, but it's the reality of justification. So I want to talk about what does that actually mean? What does salvation do? Luther said this, great quote, he said, justification is the hinge of all Christian faith and doctrine. Like it's not just a peripheral issue, it's not something that, you know, maybe we could, could leave and disagree on. He's saying that no, everything else hinges upon this reality of justification. And indeed the whole catch cry of the Reformation was this expression of justification through Christ alone, by faith alone. Through Christ alone, by faith alone. Justification. Everything else in Christian faith, in Christian doctrine, Luther would suggest, hinges on this reality of justification. So, you know, we owe it to ourselves to understand, well, what, what does it actually mean? What, what, is, what is the reality of justification for us? Because if we're going to, as we've hopefully had our hearts stirred a little bit to do, to share the gospel, to tell people about the good news, well, Jesus saves, and they say, well, what, what does that mean? Hopefully, we can be a people who can articulate exactly the reality of what this salvation looks like for us. And how wonderful it is. So let's just say up front, this is a big kind of theological issue to tackle in a sermon. 
We're going to try and dip our toes in a little bit and at least grab the essence. I was, uh, I was thinking just this week as I walked down with some of my kids to the dam and you know we've gone literally in the space of two weeks from a dry dust bowl of a dam and dry paddocks and fires on the hills to something that looks out, looks like the rolling plains of the UK, like green everywhere just in two weeks. The dam's overflowing and as I said before the service, we're so thankful for that reality. So the girls were like, let's go and have a, a little play in the dam. One of them said, I'm just going to dip my toes in. I'm just going to dip my toes in the dam and you all know where it's headed, right? So she dipped the toes in and the very next moment I heard squeals saying, daddy, daddy, my gumboots are full of water. And it's very hard to dip your toes in to the dam without heading headlong into all that it holds. So let's try and just dip our toes in a little bit and let me set it up this way. What, what is the secret to victory, to peace, to joy? What, what is the secret of a victorious Christian life? What's the secret to joy? What is the secret to really knowing the peace that's promised that passes all understanding. Now let me contrast it with this. If you, if you look at the philosophy that's all around us in the world, where do we look for greater peace and greater joy and greater contentment? Where do we look? We look here, right? Like we, we are the source of our own joy, of our own self-worth. If you're lacking something, you just need to look further within. Whereas the gospel has this entirely different picture. It says, if you want to know the secret to victory, if you want to know the secret place of power and joy, it's found in one place and one place alone. And it's not looking within, it's looking to him. It's not looking to what we can somehow do and, and work up within us. It's looking to and resting in and continually reminding ourselves and proclaiming from the rooftops because we've got a hold of it and it's so good, everything that he has done. We are justified through the power of the cross. We, we couldn't earn it, couldn't deserve it. We certainly could not add to it. And that's really the message. You know, whenever there is something in us Listening to the, the noise around us, there's something in us that says, no, actually, you need to work a little harder for this. You really need to search a bit more inside. You really need to strive a little harder. You know, we need to recognize that that is not the voice of God and his glorious gospel. Whenever the enemy comes and perhaps he says, well, you're not really good enough. You're never really going to measure up. You're always going to fall a little short. Anyone hear that voice ever? They're never going to quite make it. I've got some glorious good news for us this morning. It was never about us making it anyway. But in him, if your faith is in him, you cannot not make it because you have been justified. So come with me with that context and we're going to look at passage of scripture in Romans chapter 3 as Paul unpacks really the heart of this reality of justification and righteousness. Let me read it through so we can get the bigger picture and then we'll come back and just hopefully pull out a few 
elements and aspects of the reality of why that is important. Why would Luther go as far as to say, this is the hinge, everything else hangs on this reality. Why is it important? What does it mean for us? Verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this, For by works of the law, no human being, so catch this, who is he referring to here? Is he saying no righteous people, no sinners, no human being? Last time I checked, that's every single person on the planet. Everybody who is sucking in oxygen, this is applying to them. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being, nobody will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Another important point, we'll come back that to that in just a moment. But now, he said, that's the problem, here's the good news, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, I love this, as a gift. By His grace as a gift. The greatest gift that we could ever be given is this justification, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, everybody take a deep breath, because I know we're in some weighty, weighty theological areas, and you're thinking, how are we going to dip our toes in there without going for a swim? Well, we're going to try. Let's start off just with some basic definitions. There's these two key terms. There's justified or justification, and there is righteousness. Now, these are both terms that theologians love to write entire seminary sets upon. But very simple, righteousness is this. It's our right standing before God. It's a statement of status. So that's what we want to achieve, and the means to achieve that is this word here for justification. So justification, in a very simple sense, it's God's declaration in favor of believers. Righteousness is where we want to get to. Justification is the path that gets us there. Is that simple enough? Good. Now, as I said again, theologians will love to argue, well, is justification more imputation or declaration? Is it more about how we get saved? Is it more a declaration of we have been saved and God's fulfillment of his eternal plans and promises that culminate in the work of Christ? But for our overview purposes this morning, justification is the means, the method by which God has chosen. That's how we get there. There's this issue of righteousness. There's a, a separation. We want to be made right. And so God says, here's how we're going to do it. He is going to just justify us by grace as a gift through the death of his son. Yeah? We're still awake and we're still alive and we're still tracking along. Here's why I think this is important. I was reading a book recently. I'd recommend this to you. The author is David Zoll, and he writes this book about secularosity, is what he calls it. So obviously he's combining a few words in this, and the subtitle is this, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. 
This is a Christian guy and he's writing about what he has observed in the contemporary society in which we live. And what he's suggesting is, this is a statement from the book, he says, we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious and religious observance, and he'll define what he means by religious observance, is at record levels. And so what he puts forward and develops a case for, which I think is interesting, it's interesting, I found it interesting reading, is this premise, and in his own words, he says, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. That there is a psychological reality or a need in the human heart that we want to be made righteous. And so he says here that although nobody goes to church anymore, the religious urge remains, this feeling of enoughness or what we would use in religious circle as righteousness. But it's that sense that your existence has been validated. It's just that now we seek it elsewhere. Rather than perhaps coming to a church for that feeling of righteousness, we find it in our political worldview. We find it in our our work, our resume that's not just a description of what we do, it's become who we are, it's our identity. We find it in, in friendships, we find it in looking to other people. Here's a quote, he says this, If you listen carefully enough, you'll hear this word everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, the loneliness, exhaustion and division that plague our our moments to such tragic proportions. You'll hear people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that if we were to just reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, justification, righteousness, love would be ours. In fact, he goes on to say, and and I thought this point was interesting, that perhaps one of the reasons that the world has become so divided around, it seems almost every particular view has a chasm in between it, is that people have taken this need to be righteous and validated in their own sight. And instead of making it about works of the law, if you like, they've made it about a political worldview. And you can't disagree with that because it's no longer just something I believe, it's who I am. Issues of morality. Again, you can't disagree with that because that is the very thing that I hold up to find my identity, my validation, my sense of purpose in the world. Now, of course, he'll go on in in the book. And just one more quote for our purposes this morning. He says, the problem, of course, with any view that tries to find justification, tries to achieve righteousness, validation in any other means other than through the gospel, is that it never works. He says this, this is a quote, he says, our lives attest that that threshold, it does not exist. We are fallible and finite human beings and instead People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. Isn't that an indicting statement upon modern society? Now, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to hear some quotes like that and think, well, you know, the poor world, it's all out there. But I would suggest to us, and this is the interesting point that sort of resonated with me, is how much of that comes into the church and into our own sense of self-validation. Where is it that we look to? Where is it that we 
go to? Is it truly in Christ alone? And we'll look at a moment, in a moment, at what that looks like. Or are there these other elements? You know, sometimes a church environment can be the most works-orientated place of all, can't it? You come into a building and there's ways you've got to serve and there's things you've got to do and there's amounts of money you've got to give and, you know, there's the uh, number of times a day you've got to read your Bible. You've got to do all these things. It's just kind of like we heap upon all the works just for us to feel validated and acceptable. You're only reading your Bible five times a week for an hour a day. You should be reading it 20 for three hours a day. There's no time for sleep. You've got to work, 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 driven, driven, driven. And we develop these cultures within churches. I won't ask for a show of hands if you've ever been in one of those particular places. And people ultimately end up burnt out, frustrated, exhausted, and wanting nothing more to do with that kind of religion. So here's the good news, and let's come back to this passage of Scripture, and let's just walk it through really quickly, and then we'll bring this to a close. Because this is exactly what Paul is saying, verse 20. He says, here's what you've got to realize. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. And we could fill in the blank there. For, for works of the flesh, if you're looking to anything at all for a sense of justification, it will ultimately fail. It does not matter what is in there. No human being will be justified in his sight. And then there's this interesting phrase, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I'm sure we're all aware of this, but just to make sure we're all clear on this one particular point. You know, the purpose of the law, and Paul talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about this exact point. He said the purpose of the law was never to measure man's righteousness. It was always given as a measure of man's sinfulness. It was never a ladder that we must climb to achieve some status in the eyes of God. It was always at its ultimate level, a pathway that would reveal the way to grace. That's what it was. So he said, that's, that's the reality. You, you can deny the law, we can, we can try and just suppress it, we can try and ignore it, and we're doing a great job in our modern society of saying, well, some parts of the law we like, other parts of the law that we don't like. But the moment that we hold up our lives in the light of Scripture, it's never a pretty picture. And that's exactly what we need to realize. It's not about the works of the law that will ever lead us to this place of justification. But the good news in verse 21, he says, Righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. What the law could never achieve, which is right standing before God, has now been made manifested. It's now been made available separate from the law, although he makes it clear that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's not that it's different. This was always God's intention. His intention from the beginning was to give people the law to reveal their sinfulness so that he might come. is to define the problem so that he might come and bring his provision and his solution. So he continues on. 
the law and the prophets bear witness witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And this is the phrase that I love. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all, if you like, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, to be received by faith. See, what's he saying there? He's saying the gospel has a leveling effect. It always should. On every level, we are equal. There's no distinctions. We're equally created. We're equally purposed. We're equally fallen. We're equally sinful. And that's one of the hardest realities to get our heads around. Who's had a conversation with with someone from a different worldview, and they say, you know, the thing I can't get about you Christians is that it's like certain categories of people are out and certain categories of people are in. Like, how can you say that they're out and they're in? And I love to say to them, oh, well, that's not the case at all. I say, really? I say, oh, it's, it's much worse than what you think. <laughs> much worse. See, the gospel says that everybody's out. Apart from the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ offers, everybody's out. Everybody's, we're all in the same boat together. It's not that one category is and one category isn't. We're all fallen. We're all equally sinful. But then the good news is that we are equally saved. There is no one for whom the blood is not sufficient. There's no one for whom God looks down and says, well, that might need a little bit more. I might need a second go. I might need a second effort. I need to work a little bit harder to get that one over the line. His blood is sufficient and everybody is equally declared righteous. So I want to kind of finish that section with this encouragement, with this exhortation, with this question that we began with. You know, where is it then that our secret place of victory, that our place of of joy, that our place of peace, where does that come from? Or another way to ask the same question is where is it in our lives that we look for justification? I am justified because. I'm justified because, you know, I've been doing this Christian thing a long time. I've worked really hard. I've really you know, earn a few notches in my belt. I've, I've, really, I've really given a lot of my money, done a lot of hard things. Maybe it's completely different. Well, I'm, I'm justified because I've, I've lived a really successful life. Because there's this reality, isn't there? The, the voice of moralism or the voice of religion, it always puts us in this place of pedestal looking down upon others. I've, I've earned this. I've deserved this. There's something in me that has actually earned the reality of what Christ offers or my works have offered. Whereas the voice of the redeemed is always recognition that it's all gift. It's all by his grace. That's where I'm living. That's where I'm dwelling. That's the place of my joy. I mean, who wants to live in a place of their works? Who wants to be looking to themselves to to be continually producing a sense of joy and purpose when we have the reality of this God who 
Scriptures proclaim he predestined us in love before the foundation of the world. He thought about you, he thought about me, he thought about where he would place you, he thought about the realities of this person that he would breathe into existence. He thought about the the blood-bought gift that he would offer you through his death on the cross. And for love, he endured that suffering to give us this gift of justification, to say, you have been justified. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to strive for it. There is this reality as we look to the cross each and every time that we have been justified through what he has done. Are we resting in the contentment that Christ is sufficient? That in him we find all the needs that we have for this life and the life that is to come. Because so often the problem is that the person and the work of Christ, it no longer satisfies us. There's this human propensity, if we're honest, if I'm honest, always to say, well, thank you, Jesus, for that, but can I have that and a little bit more? Can I, can, I just, can I just add to that a little bit? It's not quite enough. It's not quite sufficient. There's this continual restlessness because I, I've got that and I appreciate that, but I just need to find a little bit of justification, a little bit of righteousness, a little bit of status like my life means something in some other place or purpose. And I want to call us back as we reflect on the beauty of the gospel to what, as I said, Luther called the hinge. Everything else hangs on this one reality. Not all of Christian faith and theology alone, but our joy and our peace and living victoriously. That is the secret place of victory. It is. And there's no other There's no other fountain that we could drink from. There's no other place to lay our head that provides the joy and the peace and the victory that we are looking for. And the beauty of it, as we come back to Romans chapter 1, as Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's what he says. What's our response to this? What's our response to everything this free gift means to us? Paul is saying, all we need to do is believe. We recognize, we realize what he's done, and there is a sense in which we say, it's not just a mental assent to the truths. There's a reality of stepping into that provision. That's where I'm going to camp. That's where I'm going to rest. That's where I'm going to place My trust is in the finished work of the cross. Now, that's the sermon. I want to have one quick aside because hopefully you noticed, and this is basically a very long plug for the baptisms that we're having in a couple of weeks. But we are having as a church some baptisms. We don't do this all the time. And I want to encourage our hearts very quickly about the importance of baptisms. Because there is this reality, as, as Jesus commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, He says, go into all the world, which we've been talking about, preach the gospel, the message matters, tell people about salvation. And then he goes on and he says, and baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And we're talking about belief, but belief, this is a whole other message, but belief always results in obedience. And first and foremost, as we take that step of trusting in him, of putting our faith in him, there is a need and a requirement for us as a response to our belief to be baptised. See, so important was this link that as far as we know, every single convert in the New Testament was baptised, other than the thief who was on the cross. A little bit of a different scenario, wasn't it? There was no chance for baptism there. But everywhere else, every time Paul proclaimed the gospel, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, there was always this same message. Repent, believe, and be baptised. Now, there is a danger that often we swing to one of two extremes with baptisms. I understand that. In the one camp, people will say, well, I don't need to be baptised. I'm saved because I was sprinkled with a bit of a water as a baby, as an infant. And the other camp is to, to say, well, I've already been saved, so therefore baptism is of no importance. So just to clarify that, baptism itself does not save But baptism is a commandment that as a result of our faith, as the outward proclamation of the inward change, that we take that step of becoming baptised. So let's not allow baptism to be something it's not. Apart from the cross, it has no significance. But let's not prevent baptism from being what God intended it to be. It's not an optional command. It's not a trivial issue. It's a willing step of obedience into the power and promise of Christ and a public proclamation of his lordship over your life. So as we've talked about the gospel, you know, I, I didn't think I could proclaim that without talking about this need to be baptized. If you're someone who as an adult has never been baptized, I would encourage you to consider making that decision. And let's pray as a people, you know, my heart in stirring our hearts in the power of the gospel is that we would, we'd be stirred, we'd, we'd, as, as Paul was, we'd catch this urgency that there is a need for us to proclaim the gospel and there should be this desire in our hearts to genuinely see people be discipled, people come to faith, people to be baptised. I'd love it if we had the problem where we had to hold baptismal services every week because there were so many people coming in who said, I believe, what do I do? We say, well, you've got to be baptised. And then we lead them in that step of faith as the, the initial step in their journey, in their relationship with God. Make sense? Amen. Let's get the worship team out. I'd love for us just to conclude in a, uh, <clears throat> a song of worship. We'll see what the Lord wants to do. Would you stand with me? Not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. What an incredible truth there is in that reality and that proclamation that Paul makes. And so, Father, I just ask that as we, as we bring this time in your presence to a conclusion. Lord, I pray that there would be a fresh stirring in our hearts. I pray that there would be in some way just a fresh reality of what it means that we have been made righteous. 
that there is right standing that we have in your eyes not because of what we have done or ever could do but because of the greatness of the love that you express towards us and I do pray Lord that there would be forever for us a constant and continual reminder that that is where we need to build our lives that Lord we don't go looking at other means and other places for justification and Father where there's been any sense of that I ask for us personally even for us as a church placing expectations of people here's what you've got to do you've got to work Lord that there be a recalibration this morning that we live and we love you and we serve and we worship not to become righteous but because you have made us righteous not to try and somehow earn our salvation but to live out the free gift that you've given to us to relish in it to allow it like the the fresh rains that have fallen upon us this week, just to continually bring life as our source of joy. Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would we know that reality and the strength that 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 offers us? For if that's our joy, if you're our joy, then nothing can taint it, nothing can hinder it, nothing can stop it. Would we be a people who know what it is? to rest and to build our lives on that foundation of your glorious gospel. So can we sing together as we conclude our time? It'll be a time of just prayer ministry for those who'd like that this morning. Just allow the Lord to move in your heart.